welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Well, there's an important question on my mind. I kind of teased it uh, with the in the movie journal that I want to I want to get to. But first, uh, before we do anything else, Tyler, uh, guest listeners, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Today, I was listening to Slayer. That's what I was listening to today. Slayer on my earbuds. It's it sounded great and uh you can have the same experience if you like good music like i do you, it'll sound good on your tweakedaudio.com earbuds they're available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Now, I said I had something I wanted to get into, a, a little top-of-the-show topic. Not something we always do with a guest, but but listeners of I Do Movies Badly, which is our guest's podcast, why don't I bring you in? Jim Rohner, host of I Do Movies Badly, how are you? I'm well, thank you very much. So people who have listened to the most recent episode of I Do Movies Badly and stayed all the way to the end uh, <laughs> heard my impassioned, uh, my impassioned opinion on whether or not Hamilton, Disney Plus's uh, new, I guess, filmed version of the stage musical um, counts as a movie or not. People heard that. People heard Jim chime in. Tyler, I want you. To, I want to hear what your opinion is. Hamilton, a movie? Well, I'll say this: I haven't seen it, so I, I don't. Uh, oh, well, I don't okay. know exactly the degree to which the the camera is active. But nonetheless, well, me, I would let, say. Let me tell you how yes. they made. Let me tell you how okay. they made it. Okay. They filmed with multiple cameras. I haven't watched it yet either, but I know they filmed with multiple cameras two performances, and then they also performed i think i looked it up 13 of the musical numbers they performed without an audience so that camera operators could be on stage and get close-ups and and do steady cam shots and stuff like that and they edited all that together into one uh one filmed uh version okay okay so, so, they, so they made a movie is what you're saying <laughs> they made a movie yes yeah. uh of but uh, so what i compared it to on jim's podcast is uh the movie the Jonathan Demi documentary or concert film Stop Making Sense, which is a Talking Heads concert film that was again also similarly two nights. Um, it's also something that uh, um, has an element of that um, audienceless performance. Not that, that Stop Making Sense is audienceless, but Stop Making Sense is not a concert that was going to happen anyway. And Jonathan Demi filmed it. They literally put on this concert and got an audience there for it to be filmed. And mm -hmm. so I feel like that's the, your bigger, biggest comparison for mixture of like filmmaking and just live performance. Um, and uh, again, to repeat what I said, yes, it's a movie. I think at the end of the year, when it comes to awards, 
when we start getting into things like acting or production design or costume sure. design awards, that seems like mm, that was for the other thing. That wasn't for the movie. But yeah. what what is film, this? Give him hell, Harry. Yeah, that's uh, that's the 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 uh, comparison that our, our our listeners know Tyler hates. Um, but uh, um, so when it comes to best film director, cinematography, editing. Those are the things that apply, I think, to this sure. film. But Absolutely. the technical awards that are the performance within the film are, uh, I don't think, should qualify. Anyway, this is. Uh, uh, is it, was this, a, I, this, was, this? This turned into me just uh, repeating what I already said on Jim's podcast. But what did Jim say? Did he say the yes. opposite? No, I, I agreed with David. Um, okay. Especially because. As I was saying uh, there, my, my wife has seen Hamilton, the live performance before. And so she loved it. And she was excited about this, uh, this release on Disney Plus. And then while watching it again, because of specifically editing, which is such a, 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 a I don't want to say an art, but a, a technique used within the, the cinematic language. Uh, because of that, she was able to experience the film or the performance, whatever you want to call it, in a different way, seeing reactions, seeing how people were um, acting during certain performances. So it so that that specific visual language that the performance added to it enabled her to experience this thing that she experienced one way in a different way. So because right. of that, it becomes a cinematic experience, I think. Yeah, I mean, when it comes right down to it, like if you're watching a movie, uh, it doesn't matter what seat you're in. You know what I mean? Uh, now, granted, if you're if you're in the very front row, then the perspective will be skewed a bit. But the the you know you're getting a close up no matter where you are, as opposed to a stage performance where if you're cl the closer you are to the stage, the more you can make out of the actors and the art direction and that sort of thing. And so uh, you know this is allowing everyone to see Hamilton in a way that literally you wouldn't be able to see. Uh, if you were to watch it on stage. So I do think that, uh, that, yeah, this, this definitely qualifies as a movie, but yes, when it comes to awards stuff, if it starts getting nominated for costume and art direction, uh, that will, I'm going to say infuriate me, um, <laughs> as a, especially because yes, director, cinematography, editing, probably even sound perhaps, mm -hmm. um, and picture itself. I think, yes, all of that, uh, could qualify when it comes right down to it. Yeah. It's, it, it is a documentary, you know? And so you would not nominate, you know, if something, if, if you made a documentary about, you know, Frank Gary, you wouldn't nominate it for art direction, even if it's really beautiful, because when it comes right down to it, you are doc, you're filming right. something that already existed and had nothing to do with your film. Although we're not, not that we uh, follow the lead of the Oscars, except for with, <laughs> timing and scheduling sure. um, but uh weirdly they have i don't think they've made an official ruling but the oscars have said that documentary is the one category that that it might not qualify for because i think the oscars do not consider concert films uh documentaries you know there are so many things that i don't like about the oscars and <laughs> uh it's always nice when i find a new one and that's and that uh, that is so stupid uh <laughs> like it's there's still logistical details that need to be worked out it's i mean it's every bit as much of a documentary as as uh 
something like hoop dreams, which admittedly takes place over many years, but you are often, yes, you're, you might be interviewing people, but you're also sitting back and filming people playing basketball. It's, which is performative insofar as that, as it requires that you to put the cameras in certain places. So as not to interfere with this thing that is happening and that other people are watching. Um, Oh boy, the Oscars, man. <laughs> you know, like there are times there are times when I defend the Oscars, like when I think people are are being overly critical of them for very specific reasons uh, that fit in with like a certain political concept. But to me, uh, because for me, it's usually it's like, oh no, you don't need to focus on that. There's plenty of stuff to hate. Uh, you don't have to cut, gin up some uh, charges here. I, I live in a space that I think makes perfect sense to me and is probably uh, impenetrable to most like non-movie people where I not only love award season, like I just enjoy award season, but I also do think it's good for movies in a way. And at the same time, I don't care about the Oscars at all. Sure. Because uh, um, uh, I, I like, even though I, I understand the bad things about award season, that like uh, it tends to elevate a certain type of movie and it tends to imply that other types of movies aren't as important. Um, and I don't like that. But just the idea of everyone, even non movie people, acknowledging the quality of a film. Uh, as as an art is, uh, is is I think it's a good thing about awards uh, awards movies. It's it's a time when, at least weirdly, to the studios and to the publicists, the, these these movies and and these artists couldn't be more uh, commodities or more products than they are at this time of year. But weirdly, at the same time, in the larger populace, it's the one time of year when people aren't treating movies as product or as commodities. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just a different type of commodity in some ways where it's like, we're, we're getting paid in gold, but not actual gold. Um, and, uh, or rather not uh, currency type gold. Uh, the, you know, something that has occurred to me over, over the years, um, in regards to like appreciating what award season is like, first off the acknowledgement that there is such a thing as quality, but I also think the I, understanding that, you know, when, when somebody watches a movie or if you're only looking at box office, uh, you look at the film as a whole. If anything, if you're analyzing box office, you might look at, okay, who are the stars? But you're not going to be looking at who are the sound guys. You're not going to be looking at the production design. You're looking at the film as a whole. And so a, a award season, it just sort of forces someone to think in terms of all these different categories and understand, not to mention the ones that that don't get nominated uh, or don't have nominations. Um, and it just, uh, it, it forces you to think about all the things that come together to make a movie. And it can also, I think, allow you to acknowledge quality in one air, er one or two areas of a film that maybe you don't even really like that much. You can say, well, such and such a movie. I didn't think the story was very good. I don't think the acting was very good, but boy, it sure looked good. So you can at least, I yeah. think it can, it, it can That's encourage a, positivity even in the midst of negativity. That seems to be a problem in the, in the discourse these days is that uh, a movie, it's like an all or nothing uh, yeah. approach um, because like with, you know, it's like a, it's like, having a Twitter account is like being like a, a radio shock jock. Like you have to have the either, uh, I love it or I hate it. Take sure. or people are going to change the channel. Uh, and 
and um uh that's why it's i I get frustrated sometimes with movies like with with people when it comes to movies i almost I, i almost tend not to talk about back to the future anymore because i'm sick of people accusing me of hating back to the future yeah i don't love back to the future i think it has glaring problems i don't think it deserves to be quite as high held in as high estimation as it is but that doesn't mean that i hate back to the future i actually can recognize all the things that are are good about it just like you can recognize you know to go back to our conversation that we were having on the movie journal this this week tyler we can recognize the way that movies in the past and even now uh might be problematic or harmful in terms of social issues they might be in uh, uh in the wrong place uh that doesn't necessarily mean the whole movie is bad yeah like it's you know and not that i'm looking to get into this but certainly there's a lot of uh, discussions being had about monuments and tearing them down and that sort of thing and this feeling of well, this person, and I'm not talking about like Confederates or anything like that, but like, oh, this person or this politician, uh, they had they had this very terrible thing in their past. It could be like, oh, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves or, or George Washington owned slaves. It's like, of course, that's a terrible thing. They're part of a terrible institution in that regard. The monument was not put up for that, you know. Uh, that's, part, that's part of it. But at the same time, like, if you look at a if you look at a statue of Martin Luther King, you're not being like, yeah, womanizing. Yeah, yeah I think no, I'm I, in I, favor I, of that. You know, I think that's. I see what you're saying. I think I tend to disagree with you a little bit on that. Not that I think all monuments should be torn down, but I think something like a monument, which is not because one of the arguments against tearing down monuments is that it's like erasing history, which I don't think is true because I don't think a monument, pretty much, to actually, what you just said, a monument doesn't actually represent the truth or the history. Right. And so to me, because putting up a monument kind of de it decontextualizes uh, or recontextualizes. um, I, I I am all for uh, tearing down or relocating whatever monuments you want that keep us having the conversation do you know what I mean? I, I, I don't want, just like sure. you, were not, you and I were talking about how we, we err when we treat movies from the past as being simpler. And so if we reduce a figure to what the monument represents, then uh, we're discrediting uh, uh, history um, and, and, we're, and we're refusing to engage in conversations that could actually be very, very helpful. So I'm, I'm all for... Uh, I don't think there are any monuments to anyone that are uh, unassailable, that are uh, sacred. I, th- I think that, uh, we, that, should, that we should question all of them, I think. That Fawn statue in Milwaukee is, uh, I'm not going to argue oh, with that. Sure. Uh, um, Rocky, Rocky yeah. at the, uh, outside the Philadelphia <laughs> Art Museum. The, the love statue like... really bothers me. Get rid of love. He's got no place in this world, I think. <laughs> what about that bull at the stock market? <laughs> We don't know what that bold did. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I have some pretty good ideas and, uh, and I'm not in favor of it. Yeah. I do think it, it, when it comes right down to it. Yeah. Uh, whether it be, you know, erecting a statue or tearing one down, if that's there, there's a finality to both actually that, that can kind of discourage right. nuance and conversation. Right. Um, yeah. which is why I'm, I, you know, I like a good plaque, you know, I like, uh, <laughs> you know, something that, that, explains 
who this person was, why this site is important or whatever, and feel free to incorporate as much. I mean, obviously you don't want it to have, uh, you know, be a fucking star Wars, scr- uh, <laughs> or anything, but, uh, well, what I like about a plaque is it's not all look at me like a statue. Exactly. You know? In fact, if for many, <laughs> for many if people, it's the exact in, opposite. Yeah. If you're interested in the plaque, it's there for you to peruse. Yeah. If you would prefer to ignore it, it's very easy to ignore a plaque. Uh, unless you're me, because as you know, uh, I have this weird thing that I have to actively work to ignore. Otherwise it will dictate my entire life. Um, there are times when like, I'll, I'll be like dry, uh, taking a, a road trip somewhere and I'll stop off at uh, at just like a rest stop only to see that there is a plaque commemorating something in this general area. <laughs> and I have this feeling my dad was the same way, but I don't think for the same reason. I will read it because I have this feeling of like, well, someone thought this was important and someone took the time and probably <laughs> had to go through all kinds of committees to get this approved. And so if someone was going to go to all that trouble and it will take 20 seconds of my time to read it, then you know what? I will give them their 20 seconds and I will read it. And almost invariably, I'm like, I do not care about this. I I regret reading it, but I always will because I feel like, well, someone took the time. Someone somewhere thought this was important. So I will, I'll, I'll give them the the benefit of the doubt and I'll give them my attention. Yeah. I think I've, uh, I've skipped over that toward the, the, the realization I go straight to the realization that you don't care at the end where I realize sure. like 20 seconds from now, I am not going to remember the Latin name for the birds that are native to this area or whatever sure. the fucking like sure. rest area uh, <laughs> black thing uh, that I'm reading is. So why even bother? It looks think, like a nice bird. I tend to be fascinated at the notion that people are fascinated by things yeah. <laughs> uh, more like so that, than yeah. the thing itself. As you, as you know, we've talked about this before uh, many years ago when we both lived in Chicago, uh, I got paid to make a short documentary slash interview, whatever about uh, the, a woman in, in, was it Milwaukee or Madison? I don't remember. It was Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Um, where that Fawn statue is. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if you know that, but um <laughs> And she had, she had created a dog species and, and, and created the breed. Uh, and she was mad with power. She was mad. You know what? You're not super (laughs) far off because there are people. Yeah. Cause there are people looking to tear her down. And so, you know, we then uh, looked online and found the sordid world of not merely dog breeding, but dog breeding within this specific breed and people like contesting uh, who actually bred it and all that. It's fascinating. And it's like, well, I don't ca- uh, The dogs were adorable, but like, I don't care about these dogs officially, but the fact that there are people that care only about these dogs yeah. is, is uh, invigorating for me. The fact that yeah, people who wake up and go to sleep thinking about this dog breed. <laughs> exactly. Um, and by the way, they might they might have some dreams in between too. So how did we uh, how did we get here from Hamilton? I don't know. Oh, but yeah. uh, Jim, we have turned this into an episode of Battleship Retention without you. So why don't we bring you back in because you pitched us this topic, and I told you uh, no pressure, but I told you you are in the driver's seat for this episode because of that. Yeah. Uh, well. First, I just want to ask, whatever happened to the Eternal Flame? We talk about plaques and statues, but whatever happened to the Eternal Flame? As a as a as a reminder of, of a sure. historical significant person. Anyway, um, I like or, an eternal, I like an eternal flame. or whatever or whatever happened to uh, the Bengals, uh, Eternal Flame. Um, but yes, <laughs> I I had been 
pitching this idea to uh, to David and, and Tyler for a little bit, and I'm glad, David, that you actually mentioned Back to the Future because, of course, the theme is all the things that I love about Back to the Future Three specifically. <laughs> no, it is. It is, not is it that little kid pointing at his dick? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Oh, that, that, yes, yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. That's right. Yeah, he's, he's making like a come here motion of the camera. It's very strange. But... It's, yeah, come hither. That's what I say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, but this, this was an idea that I had for an episode a long time ago and figured now was a, a good time because we're, we're obviously still in a pandemic, despite what some people may believe or want to believe. Um, and that pandemic is sort of like, shifted the way that things have have operated when it comes to socializing when it comes to working this podcast currently is is remote classes are remote i i could not be on battleship retention in the past unless i was actually in los angeles but we're doing Mm. things differently now and yes thank god for zoom we're (laughs) i'm i'm going to be the better man tyler and continue (laughs) with my (laughs) but eventually we're going to get to a point in the future when we look back here whether things have gotten back to normal or things are the same as they are now but we're going to get back we're going to get to a point in the future where we look back and think wasn't it weird that things were ever different um Mm -hmm. specifically when it comes to technology and so we started thinking of um movies in which uh the plot hinges on a certain technology that is now kind of outdated okay Um, and and where we can kind of look back now or future generation be like wow it was so weird that it was different, that this was a different thing, which is what, what, what it is now. And, and I've, it started general, I kind of specified it so that we could, uh, you know, have a, have a more uh, formal discussion. But um, to be clear, what this is not is films that are about technology. So we're not thinking of like war games or the net or hackers or okay. things that were specifically about technology because those films often were created during a time when, they had to project technology based on current limitations. Right. Um, and this is also not things, this is also not like period pieces. So we're not going to look back at LA Confidential and be like, well, if only they had video surveillance or. Okay. You know, All right. I'm glad that you're specifying because uh, the way that David and I have been talking about this uh, was, you know, movies that would be made different by modern technology. And my first thought was all of them. <laughs> Every yeah. single film that has existed, yeah. including ones from two years ago, yes. would be impacted by modern technology. So yeah. I appreciate that you're specifying that, like, yeah. yes, uh, you know, um, uh, Shakespeare and Love would be heavily impacted by uh, the modern iPhone because all of these characters would be burned as witches or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, okay, continue. Yeah. I appreciate you specifying. Yeah, Citizen Kane, the guy could have just, he could have just called all those people. <laughs> exactly. He could have FaceTimed. Yeah. He didn't have to go travel around and get their stories yeah Yeah. he could google rosebud and sure enough the rosebud sled company (laughs) pops up and like oh got it okay yeah yeah Yeah. yeah. we're we're not gonna have like hey hey, jake the test results came back it was her sister and her (laughs) (laughs) sir sir please stop slapping the doctor (laughs) (laughs) that's that's not that's not this but what, what so what it is is basically movies in which they've you know, they just kind of existed in their time but something specific hinged on a technology which is now outdated and and, and okay. actually kind of divided up into three categories so that which i just said plot point hinges on either an outdated piece of technology or a a, a system or structure of society um plot points that are nullified by technological advancement and i'll like 
ex explain these a bit more. And then also films that are set in the future, which once we got to that future, it proved like, oh no, it's, it's nothing like that. Um, but category one, so plot points in, uh, or, or movies in which has a plot point uh, that hinge on outdated technology. The first film that I always thought of and which kind of inspired this was Memento basically, because sure. it, is, it is not about technology. It's about this, this uh, our, our unreliable protagonist and him trying to discover the, the identity of his wife's killer. And we experience it as he does by going uh, backwards instead of forwards. And yet, the device that he uses to keep track of memories is a Polaroid, our Polaroid photographs, which you, you introduce a smartphone into uh, that world. All of his problems are basically solved because he's got, you know, he's got pictures on there. He's got voice recording. He's got all sorts of things. But even in 2000, when the film came out, cell phone technology at that time would have allowed him to take pictures, would have allowed him to take notes even put contacts in his phone is like, hey, don't trust this person. Now, I guess you can still have that that debate of like, yes, but he is still the unreliable one putting those things in the cell phone. But yet in 2000, there was a more efficient mode of keeping track of these things that I have to believe Nolan kind of left out because that wouldn't have served his story, basically. And it's that I idea of, of a certain thing which is, could have been a boon, but was also not included because it also didn't help that story that he was telling. Yeah, I think uh, there are a couple of things. One is also the, not merely the story, but also the genre uh, doesn't, it's not that it doesn't allow for it, but that, you know, when you strike a very specific tone and you're, and you're in the midst of like a mystery, uh, I wouldn't say that Memento is, is noirish, but there is a vibe there. Yeah. Um, and so in a way, despite the, the, despite the way the film is, is cut together, which is, it has a modern sensibility to it. Um, it, it definitely feels like film noir, which is old fashioned. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and what's interesting is that, there are some films, and you, you see this with horror movies that take place today, like since cell phones. Uh, much to my surprise, like I've shown uh, like modern horror movies where ostensibly like, yeah, a character could use a cell phone. They have cell phones. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've shown these to like my students and they don't question it. Like if, if the filmmaker does it right, if they strike mm -hmm. the right tone, then we, I think unconsciously accept that and be like, yes, this is a noir. Even if they don't know, even if a viewer doesn't know that term, this is a noir, this is a horror. And there are things that you just accept as part of that without even really knowing it, which is why this is something David and I have said before, which is why anybody who talks about movies like, Oh, well that, you know, this doesn't make sense or this isn't realistic. is like, well, if you're asking that question, then either the film isn't doing its job or you're not watching movies. Right. Because the, and I think the vast majority of people will accept the reality that is presented to them in a movie if it's done well enough. And I think with Memento, yeah, absolutely. Like he could have used, he could have used even, you know, uh, a Palm pilot. A, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but it wouldn't, it would just feel somehow wrong yeah. in that movie because it has <laughs> that old feel to it. 
Right. And, and I guess to be to be clear, if, if any if any listeners are thinking I, I'm not trying to say that this makes these movies bad or nullifies them. It's just it's it's an interesting thought experiment, basically. And Tyler, you're right, because um, films do get kind of clever to work around this where, you know, it could be a period piece. So like, well, of course, they can talk on cell phones because it was the 1980s and the 1970s. They didn't have cell phones. So that's why they can't blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. or even just the bad cell phone service so so filmmakers do get creative to kind of work around that to kind of create a world where well of course this is why he you know they weren't like live instagramming this as things were happening basically um sometimes i think they don't get creative enough i feel like there's way too many movies (laughs) where they're like we don't want to deal with cell phones so they're just out of range or whatever like sure Mm -hmm. yeah so uh i i feel like as much as uh cell phones are uh, smartphones we just call them phones now i feel like an old i'm an old fogey actually still saying cell phones yeah. mm-hmm. as much a as cellular phones, telephone <laughs> yeah um as much as they're a part of our lives now they're not we've talked about this with uh we, we talked about this um a while ago with our with uh, our friend scott and i when we were talking about uh the decreasing cultural relevance of cinema um uh that uh phones aren't as much a part of mainstream cinema as they are a part of our lives. Uh, and it does seem like filmmakers just don't want to tell stories that take place uh, in phones. They don't want to come up with new stories or something. I don't know what it is. I do wonder though, like, you know, in 20 years when the cell phone, cause I mean, the three of us remember, and I think uh, obviously a number of people remember when cell phones weren't a, uh, uh, a part of our lives, but you know, in 10, maybe 20 years and certainly beyond that, uh, we will now, we will have a couple of generations that did not live without a cell phone. And I wonder if, if they will have a hard time consciously accepting what we're talking about. Um, like if a filmmaker does not want to include a cell phone, I wonder at what point it's just such in, it's such an instinct mm-hmm. uh, that, that it actually changes the way people watch movies. Like we are willing to go along with it because we, we remember both consciously and unconsciously a time when they didn't exist. But for some people that, that will seem like, you know, a hammer and chisel or whatever. Um, and so it's not, and it's not to say it's less or more sophisticated film watching. It's just about the instinct changing in the, in the audience. Yeah. I'm trying to think what, because the, the internet in general and, and, and phones in particular are such a huge shift in our way of life. I'm trying to think if for people our age, but people like in their thirties, aging millennials, um, is there a comparable technology that came about like in the, in, in like the, either when we were young or, or shortly before we were born that it's weird that movies, and again, not period pieces, but like, I'm right. trying to think in movies in the fifties. Um, I mean, I would oh, you say know what? There, there was a time when people didn't have answering machines and that's, uh, sure. mm-hmm. that's weird sometimes. Although it becomes, I watch so many old movies that it becomes weird when you watch kiss me deadly. Uh, because my camera has an answering machine. That's such a rarity in movies from that time. Um, uh, but yeah, I guess that that is a thing that like, uh, if someone wasn't, uh, not only people that have said, if someone wasn't home, they just weren't home. Like you couldn't, yeah. not only cause you're not, they didn't have their phone on them. Like we do now. You couldn't even leave a message. They just weren't home. Yeah. Also, um, the, 
Now, I wonder if people just stayed home more. Then. <laughs> Probably. Where did they have to go? You know, the <laughs> fucking saloon or whatever, or the, the mines. That's true. Shopping malls didn't open until like the seventies. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and before also- that it was nothing. Yeah. Sorry. Jim. <laughs> There was nothing, and then there was, and then God spoke, and there were shopping malls. <laughs> exactly. Um, oh, uh, wait. That reminds me. Uh, this is a secondhand story that I'm going to try and remember. My mom told me because she went to like a Catholic school, and um, there was some sort of song they would sing about Jesus where he would, uh, what was it? He would, Jesus stood above them all or, or was bigger than them all. And in her child's like brain, she was picturing a giant, like Godzilla sized Jesus who was bigger than them all. And he was, and you know what? He was trying not to step on things cause he, he loves everybody, yeah. but he was just so damn big, you know, yeah. uh, he was, he was, you know, both human and God. And so he couldn't always avoid stepping on a, you know, a small building or a dog or something. Oh God. Poor dog. Uh, <laughs> and David, this is an answer to your question, which I don't know if it's a specific technology as much as the proliferation of it, but, um, there, there's the this the scene in in Goodwill Hunting when uh, Casey Affleck is beating off in in a uh, in Ben Affleck's I forget the characters' names but in his mom's room he's like it's the only room that has a, a VCR basically and just that idea mm. that there was a time when oh, right. home video recorders or, or players were so cost prohibitive that it was a rarity to to have them in a home and now it's I mean and now it's like if someone has a VHS player are you serious you have a VHS player because things have advanced so much that it's like you have so many different avenues to be watching movies now um that's a strange thing to me but um uh one other one other yeah I I think about like how did movie fans like who are older than us like how did they come to know movies so well like I know days of confused like the back of my hand because i've been able to watch it literally scores of times uh in my life but like there was a time when you were just or maybe the movies would play in theater so long they would just go see uh another this is gonna be all stories about my mom uh my mom worked at a uh, a movie theater when she was a teenager and it had it was a two screen it had like a big screen and a small screen the small screen would show b movies that would switch out every week or two the big screen the entire time that she was there over a year only showed either the sting and then the godfather part two those are the only movies the she worked it over a year and there were two movies in the main theater <laughs> that in that entire time uh so yeah people probably just went and saw the sting you know once a month or so <laughs> and i mean the the role of tv like uh tv started working with studio uh, networks started working with studios and like licensing out movies and it was like a big deal it was like a huge uh it, it was very exciting Uh, And often it was an event. And that was something that actually happened like well into, you know, our childhoods and teenage years, like the world television premiere of Mm -hmm. Jurassic Park or whatever it is. And that was like a huge, the the ABC Sunday night movie or whatever. Um, Do you remember when they was at ABC who showed Schindler's List? unedited unedited that's right uh, that was actually oh, that's yeah. actually how i saw schindler's list uh, i had not seen it before then did they, they did they still have commercials you know that i can't remember i don't even i don't remember either it feels um, like no maybe they didn't 
Yeah, I guess that'd be a little bit crass. It would be crass to to show like, (laughs) yeah, like, you know, people getting uh, executed and then buy the Chevy. (laughs) (laughs) I wish commercials were more the way were more the way we summed them up. Just a guy would be like, buy this Chevy. Yeah, (laughs) uh, that would be nice. (laughs) All right, Jim, this all came about from you talking about a single film. So what else you got? Um, Take us one, home with the end of the episode. <laughs> another, I still got, I'm only 33% of the way through the categories. Um, <laughs> but another one, uh, one of my favorites, uh, my cousin Vinny, there's a, a dramatic moment where they're awaiting a fax from a judge about the identification of Jerry Callow. And now faxes, yes, are still a thing. I still use them in, in, in my job. It's an easy way to send paperwork back and forth and true story in an apocalypse an apocalyptic scenario in which uh, phone lines went down, you could still use a fax line that still has a connection. So it's still a useful piece of technology. And yet if it was like, Oh, I'm going to text this judge or call this judge. It'd be like, whoops, uh, Joe Pesci's uh, shit out of luck. But instead it's like, I left a message. I'm waiting for this fax to come in. And so there's, there's a dramatic tension that comes in there about like, what, what's it going to say? What's it going to say? And then of course, but that's, it's a, I hope uh, once I go along with these, you kind of understand what I'm saying. Like the, the technology doesn't matter in my cousin Vinny, but it's that one specific moment, which like you couldn't do that now, basically you couldn't tell that specific story. Now that's interesting. That reminds me of, and this is a period piece, but the recent miniseries, uh, little fires everywhere mm-hmm. had a scene where Reese, where this been realizes the fax has been sent to her house and that it's sitting there on the fax machine <laughs> and, she needs Carrie Washington to not see it. So she's like racing home to get there before Carrie Washington's character arrives at her house uh, <laughs> because the fax has been sitting there since the, the afternoon. Uh, there's a, there's a part in the firm, which I recently rewatched where uh, at the, at the villains uh, office, like a very important fax is coming in while the, like he's in the other room, but as would happen with printers and fax paper and receipt paper, it's getting towards the end. So it's particularly cur- like curly. So it, it prints out and then like it cuts and it falls and rolls under the fax machine. Mm. If the, you know, so if it had, if they had loaded the paper, uh, the, then it would be sitting there. A character would see it. And Tom Cruise is screwed. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, certainly if that were just a, if that, if it was just Hey, I sent a text to everybody in the firm. Here's the situation. Then like Tom Cruise is uh, just full on dead at that point. Um, but yeah, it's uh, fax machines. The insider uses a fax machine really well too. Like there's a fax, a, a fax conversation back and forth between Russell Crowe and Al Pacino. And it actually works really well because, you know, uh, as the paper comes out, the reply becomes more dramatic. You're seeing, you're seeing the reply a little bit at a time, as opposed to all at once. And uh, yeah, good for Michael Mann re- uh, being like, Oh, this is going to work really well dramatically. <laughs> I don't think I've used one in almost 10 years, maybe, maybe 10 years, actually. Yeah. Maybe a decade. I, I used one this year, I believe. Wow. Um, you know, it, it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite handy, especially um, I, I know we, we work with clients a lot where we need to have signed documents sent back to us. And if they don't know how to work a, well, I guess if you don't know how to work a scanner, how do you know how to work a fax machine? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> but there is that idea of like, you know, they, or they, they don't have Adobe software, so they can't sign something and send it back as an attachment. So they'll physically sign it and fax it over. And it's just easier that way we have documentation of that sort of thing. But 
um, yeah, they're, they're handy little devices. Um, which speaks again to something that David and I hate uh, in general, but also it's, it's, it's maybe most notable in my mind um, to in uh, almost famous, which is that moment where a character is talking about like the miracle of facts. And he goes, he goes, you know, only takes, you know, 45 minutes a page. And of course <laughs> that's played for humor in the moment. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing like, like, oh, can you believe that this was amazing back then? It's like, yes, this movie was made in 2000. Gosh, I wonder if there was any technology that we thought was amazing at the time that we would laugh at now. <laughs> Thank God that we had perfected all technology in 2000. <laughs> like, it's, it's that attitude that like, yeah. you know, yes, of course, whether it be fashion or whatever, we're always going to look at the past and say it sure was silly and we all thought it was great. But it's we're putting the blinders on to what the present could possibly be, which is why it's just... I, I very much, certainly from a fashion standpoint, like t-shirt and jeans, the jeans, maybe they're a little bit tighter. Maybe they're a little bit baggier, but don't go too far in any, any direction. Sometimes I think about like when people get like, we talk about like oh, this year's or this season's fashions. And I realize you understand in the distant future, they're just going to lump it together by centuries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people in, 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 in the 20, in the 2700s are going to look back at the 20th century and not differentiate between the thirties and the nineties. It's yeah, going to be oh, like exactly. uh, essentially yeah. the same look. Well, uh, all right, Jim, what do you got? Come on. Well, well I was going to say in, in Tyler, the reverse of that situ situation you have is, is in um, Boogie Nights when they're talking about VHS and how that's going to be the future. And it was like, yeah, no, it's not. But I mean, that sure. plays, in, that plays into the mood of, of the film in general, but um, I won't uh, with the, the uh, with an eye towards kind of speeding things along. I won't go into too many details of the other ones with category one, but um, the original Dawn of the Dead, I mean, shopping malls, we kind of already talked about it, but like in the 1970s, that was a new consumer capitalist thing. And now it's like uh, people don't really go to that anymore. So the significance of that whole social commentary Romero was trying to make isn't lost, but it's a bit muddled because that was so specific to, and, and maybe I'm breaking my own rules. Maybe you can consider that a period piece. I don't, but um, maybe I'm breaking my own rules of films about technology when I say you've got mail because chat rooms are not, I mean, they are still a thing, but when it comes to dating and socializing, you don't really have the anonymity with Tinder and with all those kind of things. Um, mm -hmm. And then David um, kind of connected back to the future, not because of the technology, but because some of the all relies on the DeLorean as the time machine, which is so like, I mean, when I first saw it, I'm like, what the hell is a DeLorean? I don't know. I know that's, that's what, that's one of the things that I, that annoys me about that movie is it's such a, like, it's like a hacky comics joke mm -hmm. that, that doesn't, it, it doesn't translate over time. Like that's, it's, if the movie weren't, if the movie hadn't become a classic and the DeLorean hadn't become just associated solely with the time machine <laughs> yeah that joke wouldn't make any sense but now people mm -hmm. don't even think of it as a joke almost mm -hmm. i don't know yeah. why i don't know why that bothers me but it's it seems like it's it, i equate it with the uh like the shit happens or have a nice day uh, parts yeah. of forrest gump where it feels like Robert Zemeckis making a hacky joke because he thinks we'll think it funny like it, it feels like him pandering and i don't like that it's pandering in a certain way, at least with Forrest Gump, it's like it, it fits with the larger thing that this uh, this guy who is who is so 
simple and unassuming would be responsible for the entirety of American history, both in the big developments and the smaller ones as well. That at least is like a motif throughout. I may not enjoy it, but at least it's, yeah. it, it fits with what he's trying to do. But yes, uh, the DeLorean, that's one that's just so fascinating. And I feel like that's an episode worth, worth uh, looking into, which is like products that are used so specifically in movies that you can't really get away from them or it's the first thing you think of. Like certainly with the DeLorean, like there's the only reason anyone knows about it is, uh, is back to the future. But at the same time, when I think of uh, another film of the time, like Reese's pieces, like they Mm -hmm. play such a huge role in ET. Yes, they exist on their own and they're going to be fine. But at the same time, uh, I think for people of a certain generation or later, you think of Reese's Pieces and you think of the thing that, that lured uh, E.T. to his death. I may not remember the movie totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have that with, um, not with products, but with songs. And my, my wife gives me trouble because she's like a huge music fan, like has really great taste in music, puts me to shame. Um, but uh, um, I have a thing where even if I already know and love a song, once it's used in a memorable way in a movie, I'll forever associate it with that, whether I want to or not, mm-hmm. because we were listening, we were playing cards and listening to cream the other day and white room came on and I thought of Joker and I was like, Oh, why am I thinking of Joker right <laughs> uh, now? <laughs> yeah. well, maybe okay. that one will fade with time. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if this is a good or bad thing, but I can't hear video killed the radio star without thinking of empire records. Yeah. That's the movie I think of with that song too. Yeah. yeah. Which is a movie that I love. Tyler has, uh, has mercifully not seen empire. Records. No, no, no. I, I saw empire records. I oh, just, right, I didn't see it at the time. Okay. And when I did see it, I didn't like it. So I've only seen it the once and I can't really, I can't, uh, I can't necessarily associate any particular music with it. So, and you also can't relate to why people like me and Jim will forever love empire records, despite knowing, uh, that it's pretty much just garbage. Correct. It's not, yes. a, it's not a good yes. movie, but there's a soft spot in my heart for it. Um, yeah. Uh, and so I think without any segue whatsoever, moving into category two, in which I said, uh, plot points that are nullified by technological advancement, which may seem very similar to what we were just talking about. And if that's your, your take, I completely understand. So I guess the only way I can differentiate is by giving you an, an example, yeah. which is one of my favorite movies of all time. One of, I think the best movies of all time, probably the perfect script, the apartment you could not tell that movie or tell that story, that specific story now, because once Airbnb came around, these bosses have uh, <laughs> an easy way to get around with having these extramarital affairs. And thus, C.C. Baxter becomes not the person of pivotal importance that he is. Okay, but well, here's my counter to that. Okay. Is that these married uh, madmen boss assholes... Um, <laughs> What they got to uh, start to have their own credit card, own bank account, own like uh, Airbnb account. Like there, there's a paper trail when you use Airbnb. To the 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 plus side to them uh, for them uh, using uh, Jack Lemmon's apartment is that there's no paper trail. Yeah, and they know that the person that's that's uh, offering it has an incentive to keep it very quiet. Mm. Um, of course. 
I would venture to say that these guys uh, probably do have their own bank accounts. Um, <laughs> it, it stands to reason. Like when you have uh, Fred McMurray, you know, throwing a couple hundred bucks on the on the uh, dresser for Shirley MacLaine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I, I imagine he doesn't have to worry about going home to his wife and his wife being like. We, I feel like we're $200 short or whatever it is. Um, yeah, but, uh, because that's, well, then now we're back to the technology thing. She's not uh, like, I was checking our account online and you made exactly, a withdrawal yeah. of $200. Yeah. yeah, yeah. as opposed to like, I got our uh, six month uh, account of everything we've spent. Um, yeah, but no, I do think that something like that, it's, I mean, honestly, I feel like so many movies about uh, marital infidelity and like, uh, and characters trying to be discreet. I feel like so much, so many movies would be impacted by modern technology with uh, various apps and like, whether it be a hookup app or they could be using uh, what is the, there's, there's a name of, of a, of like an app or a, or a website that specifically was about uh, facilitating like affairs. Yeah, I don't Ashley, remember. Ashley Madison. Is Ashley what it was Madison. Called. Yes. Um, um, so it's, so I feel like a movie like the apartment would be heavily, I think it would have incorporated a lot of that sort of thing. If that existed. That reminds me, did you ever see, I feel like it's become maybe more, uh, and I haven't watched any of the American uh black mirror i feel like it's become kind of hip to 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 make fun of black mirror but uh, in the original british run did you ever see the episode called the entire history of you uh, i don't know if you guys saw it yes is that but, the one with the, the guy has a recording device in his eye uh, well, uh, no there are everyone has a recording device implanted yeah, yeah and okay. so that's about almost the opposite of what you're talking about tyler like the fact that the paper trail is there that you can catch your spouse cheating is maybe maybe you shouldn't be able to <laughs> you know uh, maybe that's going to drive you crazy and turn you into uh, an obsessive person who ruins their marriage uh, it's a great episode that that was i believe the first episode of black mirror that i watched oh okay um, the first one was the pig fucking one right that's yeah, the absolute the actual like first episode yeah that's correct uh but for some reason that one was the first, and, and I mean, I mean, both are are great at introducing. They're like, "Yep, everything is hopeless, and this is incredibly cynical." Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that was the first one uh, that I watched. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't do such a great job with category two because the next one that I wrote down was taxi driver, and the only note that I wrote was Uber driver. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is. <laughs> You're like, I feel like picturing were... pitching the graduate sequel at the beginning of the player, right? I was gonna say you're like, uh, you're like the Simpsons version of Mad Magazine, uh, where it's like, hey, how about this? Everybody hates Raymond, and uh, you're just like, just these guys sitting around me like, hey, I've been noticing a lot about Uber. What if we did one called Uber Driver, right? That could work. Um, though I do, you know, yeah, it's uh, were you to make a movie about a modern taxi driver, he certainly would not have as many fares uh, and he probably would switch over to uh, to Uber. Yeah. One, there's a Denzel Washington movie where he's a Lyft driver uh, for, oh, for right. a little while. It's, it's an e- one of the Equalizer movies, I think. Right. Um, but yeah, and I thought that was very, uh, that was very interesting. And, and yeah, I, I don't know if, if it if that plot is is nullified by that advancement in technology but but the thing is there was just something about 
New York City, especially in the 70s, and taxis as a, uh, a mode of transport um, that made that so specific to that time. Whereas, um, I, I mean, nowadays it would almost be the story would be so much different because people are are using ride shares so often that taxis are even kind of um, people want to avoid them as much as they can because it's like, well, why why sit with this person who may not know where I'm going to go, where I can just plug in my GPS with this person and not talk to this character whatsoever. Not to mention... I I missed... I I was never uh, uh, well off enough to take cabs regularly, but I do miss... uh, uh, I I miss getting into a cab and just saying like an address or or an intersection and trusting that this professional uh cab driver knew how to get there because they they usually did and that was always impressive to me and you know i think about like in, in london you have to actually like pass a test and yeah mm-hmm. uh, uh to, to get your license yeah it's uh yeah when i lived in chicago i took a couple cabs here and there um and you know, there are times when it's like, oh, I'm on a, I'm currently on a street and there aren't, I don't see any, any taxis. So I need to walk to a place where a cab could potentially be because yeah. like, I'm not going to call the cab company and, and wait for it to come to me. Whereas yeah, with, with uh, Uber and Lyft and that sort of thing, it can come right to you relatively quickly. Yes. You might still be a little bit outside of where, uh, where it is, but at the same time, like you don't have to worry about one trying to find you or having to, to get, get their attention. And yeah, although you do sometimes have to call the driver and say, no, I'm on this side of the street. Sure. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and, and there was, and with, with taxis, especially there was also this idea of, well, Tyler, I know you've never been to New York city. David, have you ever been or have you both not? Uh, I've been to New York city. Uh, I don't know that Tyler hasn't, but uh, uh, it's been over 10 years. Because um, because now legally, if you get into a cab, they have to take you anywhere that you want to go within the five boroughs. A lot of taxi people, taxi drivers, will throw you out, trusting that you are naive enough to be like, oh, okay, I accept my fate, which was mm. what happened the very first time I ever tried to get a cab in New York City. But legally, they are supposed to take you wherever they wherever you uh, want to go. Now with Uber, they can reject you as a ride. Like uh, that person's going there. I don't want to take that person. And so essentially, you know, you have this idea of a person gets in the cab and like, well, I'm stuck with this driver or this driver stuck with me. And then the, the drama can play out where, you know, uh, Travis Bickle could be circling around for blocks and just like not picking anyone up where someone's like, yeah. you know, th- there, there, there's a, a change there with it, with a, an inescapability, which I think is, is interesting. Um, or he would see that like, Oh, this person has a 45 minute ride. This is going to be great. And then the person cancels after 30 seconds and then he just loses his mind. And, uh, that's what causes his murderous rampage. Harvey Keitel plays a guy who decides, you know what? I'm going to go with the other, the other service. Right. Yeah. I went, we went with a Lyft driver instead. Yeah. Um, this one is, I don't know if, if it qualifies for for this, but I this was something. But I wait, I want to do more of your your taxi driver Uber driver. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like I like this. We could do it for like all the the king of comedy, the king of Vine. I don't know if I have it because now I'm just going back through Main my- Streets, Troll Streets. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, the, only, the only one that I'm thinking of is like Goodfellas, which would be like the last temptation of the- Christ, the last thirst pick of Christ. 
Okay, I did three. <laughs> um, but it's ex- thing- it's fun making fun of Jim, isn't it? <laughs> because he'll never say anything against it. He just absorbs it, and obviously, absorbing it makes him you know taller. taller. Like it just uh, he's like the Hulk in that regard. Um, but anyway, okay, Jim. Listen, everyone has their Travis Pickle moment as well. Um, but. Uh, once again, I, I'm not sure if this qualifies for this, but just this idea of horror movies sometimes, but specifically zombie movies and vampire movies, always seem to exist in a world where zombie and vampire movies don't exist. In the sense of people are, I mean, of course, someone comes back from the dead. That's it takes time for your, your mind to, to, to wrap around that. But also, no one seems to have an idea of how to get rid of these things, despite decades of admittedly fictional documentation of how to get rid of these things. Yeah, I think, uh, and just for the record, everybody, uh, we lost David. There was a bit of a connect a connection issue. Um, I don't know if he's going to sign back on, or uh, I know that he did have some issues in his neighborhood of the power going out. So, uh, so maybe he'll join us. Uh, maybe he won't. I'm not sure. Uh, personally, I'm happy to be rid of him. Uh, I hope his never. I hope his power never comes back on. Because uh, you know, it's it's my time to shine. Um, and it's time for this podcast to get a lot more conservative. Um, just turn it into a version of AM radio. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, no, that is something that that is interesting, and uh, and I think it's 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 one of the reasons why Scream was so novel. Um, the idea of characters in a slasher movie able to recognize not that they're in a movie, but that they're in a slasher scenario because the person perpetrating it has also uh, seen these movies. Um, And it is one of those things that like uh, something like the walking dead. uh, There's a lot of things that I like about the walking dead sort of on principle more than execution. But uh, one of the things that always bothered me um, is that, you know, each different group that they would run across, every group had a different name, has a different name for zombies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm fine that that like, okay, well, it's not a guarantee that if this were to happen and zombie movies didn't exist, uh, it's not a guarantee that they would arrive at that. But by calling it, calling them, like there's not a single group that would call them zombies, knowing the at least the concept of a zombie, not, and, and I don't even mean like the, uh, the, the dead walking, but like, let's say, let's say the old like voodoo concept of the zombie, mm-hmm. you know, that's still around. That's where we got the name for the, the living dead. And so no one's even going to suggest that like yeah. at least in the, in the run of the show have one group, not walkers or biters or whatever the hell it is. Um, have one group say zombies, hell, even have everybody laugh at the idea of calling them that, uh, whatever you got to do, uh, after a certain point, like to watch them bend over backwards to come up with names that aren't zombies is something that, uh, I find, uh, oddly exhausting. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I, I can understand the, when it comes to vampires and werewolves and that sort of thing, I can definitely understand that. Like it just having characters discover something and discover like, uh, the means of getting rid of that thing. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, there's drama to be mined out of that uh, as opposed to it's like, Hey, it's zombies. We should shoot them in the head. We all got that. Okay, great. Um, (laughs) I think there's still appeal in knowing the rules, but still dying. Um, I think there's tremendous, uh, 
tremendous power and drama in that. But yeah, after a certain point, yeah, after a certain point, I <laughs> feel like audiences are not necessarily sophisticated, but they at least are knowledgeable enough. They're like, okay, we've seen this before. We've seen people have to learn that. Okay. These guys can't go outside or this is the, it's the full moon. Watch out. Uh, you know, having the characters be as smart as the audience, I think goes, can go a long way, especially in a horror movie. And especially when you discover that those smarts, uh, don't, aren't going to save you. Yes. Well, and, and, I can I can also kind of see specifically when it comes to vampires is the vampire is also an archetype or a myth which tends to vary from culture to culture. So to kind of say, well, it's always going to be, you know, uh, a stake in the heart or sunlight. I mean, th- those are the two things that seem most common, but also they can vary depending on kind of what culture is imagining them to be. So that, that I can kind of give some leeway. Um, and when it comes to zombies, I mean, I mean, you're right. There is, there is some tension in that idea of the discovery of what they are, the discovery of how to kill them or what they kill and how they affect it, it, There, there needs to be some dramatic tension there, which I certainly understand. But also when it comes to zombies, which are mostly depicted as slow moving humanoid type things, the head just makes the most sense to kill. Anything. Sure. Um, and I'm kind of waiting for, um, and I'm wondering because of how, huge i mean in, in the early to mid 2000s the zombie the zombie genre got so humongous and became so saturated pop culture so much that i'm wondering if that's why we don't see them now because there's not there hasn't been as many unique ways to tackle them so i am waiting yeah. for someday someone to do the yesterday treatment and have a, a guy wake up in a world where all zombie movies are gone but there's a zombie apocalypse, but he knows what to do because Oh sure. when he went to bed, he had seen 28 Days Later or he had seen Dawn of the Dead, so he knows what to do. Yeah, and then, he, you know, they he gets elevated to President of the United States or something like that. <laughs> yeah, some, yeah, something ridiculous. Um, because it is like meta and jokes in which the only kind of way that they do get around. I mean, you, you made the joke or you made the comment of nobody says zombie they did once in Shaun of the dead. And the joke was like, don't say that that's ridiculous because like, yeah, nobody yeah. actually says this thing uh, yeah. ever in any of these movies. Um, yeah. And yeah, the, the, the headshot thing, it does feel like uh, that's something a person could arrive at pretty organically, uh, <laughs> which is like, is that not to be a flippant, but like, is there a threat coming towards you? Go for the head. If it still comes after you, you know what? We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Let's <laughs> let's go for the head first. Whether yeah. it be a shark, a bear, uh, a, a zombie, a werewolf. You know, just for the just uh, let's just we're throwing everything at the wall. Let's have the first thing be shoot it in the head. <laughs> yeah. That that should be that should absolutely be your first rule. Um, two movies that I debated putting in here, but talked myself out of. Um, Fight Club, because I mean, once again, similar with the Memento thing, it's like, well, if they just had this this technological advancement, they would have known that Tyler. But then I talked myself out of that one because also in that movie, the narrator and Tyler are these two guys who are trying to live off the grid and away from kind of sure modern um, modernity and like uh, SGU conveniences, that kind of stuff. So that one I think can kind of make sense because you get the sense even if Fight Club was made in 2010, they would have still tried to live in a shitty place. And- sure not have Facebook and their cell phones and stuff. And then 
I also thought about Jurassic Park, the hacking scene where Lex kind of gets Jurassic Park back online. Sure. But that one I also thought like, well, spiritually that can still remain the same. The technology advances, but there are still hackers. There are still people who are currently into that. So that's sure. that's that's not a thing. Um, and then I guess, uh, so to move into category three, which was of course future, future films or films that took place in the future, which once the future got here kind of told us like, well, that's not how it is. Um, I wish David were here because the first thing that I thought of was Back to the Future 2, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, told us that in 2015, 3D technology would look like a very certain thing, that we'd have flying cars, that we'd have that video chatting and food preparation, all that sort of stuff. And now I suppose you could argue that they leaned into absurdity and, and, and overblowing it a little bit because I know at the end of the first Back to the Future, when Doc shows up in that ridiculous outfit, Robert Zemeckis intended that to be kind of an over-the-top ending, but the film sure. was so popular, he's like, well, we have to make a sequel now. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I think there are some concepts that you'll see on, like, Star Trek or something like that, where it's like, well, this is the future, so we can have these video conversations. And I think that genuinely comes out of wouldn't it be neat if this happened we just can't do it yet but in the future maybe we can and so it comes out of a a a real maybe not necessity but a very genuine desire in the same way that there i was about to uh like teleportation you know uh who knows maybe someday maybe someday uh it'll happen where we can teleport from one place to another in which case you'll look at something like Star Trek or something like that and say, oh, they were ahead of their time. It's like, well, yes, but they're also looking at the very real issue of wanting to travel uh, quickly. Um, And so this is a a neat sci-fi way to do that. But uh, on one hand, I don't think anybody, like if the the transporter is invented, I don't think anyone's going to say, oh my gosh, like look what Star Trek uh, uh, created. It's like, or people recognize the need for that when they wrote Star Trek uh, and then we caught up to it. So, and it's the same with like video chatting and that sort of thing. So I, I think, don't people, think people will look at Star Trek and go, they got transporting way wrong. That's not how it works <laughs> exactly. at all. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it takes like 30 seconds uh, instead of those <laughs> a second and a half that it takes us. What a bunch of Neanderthals. Um, yes. David is back. I didn't know if you'd acknowledged that I uh, that my internet went out. Yes, and I said some very negative things about you. Yeah, I love it. So uh, you'll have to listen to find out, but we both yeah. know you won't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, we did move on to the third category, the one that allows us to make fun of older movies that uh, projected uh, technology, and we can say, boy, those, those we sure are better than they are. That was the way Jim phrased it, if I recall. Yes. But I, I don't know if you guys talked about this, but um, sometimes they get it right enough that you almost don't notice anymore. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like when you watch 2001 now and he's like essentially like FaceTiming or Skyping with his family, yeah. mm. it almost stopped. It doesn't even seem it's just I feel like I don't even think about it because that's like what we're doing right now. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't seem, it certainly doesn't seem like a fantasy and it doesn't seem that impressive. You're yeah, just like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
2001 is a pretty low ambition uh, in a lot of ways. I've got a monolith uh, in the corner of my room. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems seems like when films try to, to focus on or include stuff, technological advancements in the most banal of ways, then that's when it kind of seems like, okay, this is, this makes more sense. And this, but, but when you have like, David, you joined back in in, in a, the middle of a Back to the Future 2 conversation. So it's like when we were promised flying cars, when we were promised these um, rehydrate level four, please, food preparation machines, like, well, that's uh, not promised. I mean, that... I, no, I don't think in, in I'm holding was... Robert Zemeckis to it. And I said we go to his house. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and so also that leads into like another one that I thought of was uh, Blade Runner with not just the idea of replicants, but also that ridiculous photo enhancement technology that he uses which is something to take a a flat two-dimensional picture um but move around the corners of that picture in order to discover so it's like uh, okay come on now like this i don't know but also what i I don't remember what year that was supposed to take place in but i feel like 19 okay oh so so we did pass that one up yeah yeah um yeah and the the one that i found the most interesting uh, was aliens because that exists in a world where there is interstellar travel. We have um, uh, we have discovered new species and new races. I mean, not just the xenomorphs, but the the troopers are all, are all kind of joking about some hot alien race that they all had sex with and are, are you know like remembering that and that kind of stuff. So there's all these advancements in in technology and in and in uh, you know discovery of, of, of new life forms. And yet that scene when they go into the nest or, or whatever it is you want to call it. And there's that wonderful scene when they're all, when the Marines are all getting picked off like one at a time, basically the dramatic tension all comes from experiencing it through a technology, which was, which is now incredibly outdated that like low resolution video technology that, Mm -hmm. What, that added something to that film when it was made in the mid 1980s but now it's just kind of like really they can fly through space but they can't get their video any clearer than what we are currently seeing <laughs> although i do i will say i do think that a a a theme in the alien movies that you definitely see in uh aliens with that video is the idea that these characters are so convinced that they will be fine because of their technology whether it be their weapons or in this case, uh, okay, well, we're going to be fine because uh, our commanding officer can see what's happening at all times. And then almost immediately uh, the, the reception is bad because they have to go underground or whatever it is. And so I, that one I'm actually, I'm okay with uh, showing like it not working or whatever it is because that's, that is itself sort of maybe not a plot point, but that's, it's a thematic beat um that all the stuff that makes us feel confident in our abilities uh will fail us the thing about aliens uh that cracks me up is that i mean alien is already in the future aliens is what 70 something years after 57 oh 57 years uh after alien and yet when you see paul paul reiser and the Wayland yutani people in their conference room there are people smoking cigarettes inside (laughs) yeah Yeah, they're smoking cigarettes inside and uh but both their haircut and their suits couldn't be more of the time when the film was made like james uh, james cameron clearly thought like 
I know what's going to stick around. But I mean, I guess that that's the cycle. So maybe that may, I can believe, okay, sure. maybe it's a throwback. It's sure. maybe the 1980s is really in, uh, but yeah, the smoking inside thing is the thing that cracks me up. And, and I, but I also appreciate that more than if they would have tried to forecast what future clothing will look like. Cause anytime a movie does that, it's just like this, I don't, where you like who thought that we were going to be wearing two ties in the future i mean robert zemeckis did obviously but where, where did that idea come from just like no i, I i'm yeah I'm, sometimes it does seem like just a will be a weird thing yeah. i like uh, a movie i think that it does it well is her i think i was just her, gonna say it yeah. yeah her is a movie that actually does kind of predict uh it seems like a, a thoughtful prediction of what uh future style might be like Mm-hmm. And technology, like there's not merely like the, the living OS or anything like that, but you know, when he puts earbuds in and says, uh, you know, play melancholy, like where it's not merely a specific artist or a specific album or even a specific style of music, it's a mood and just say, I want to feel this thing. So, uh, you know, technology is, is, um, advanced enough to understand what kind of music would qualify as melancholy. And so I feel like that's, and, I, and you know what, that, that's the kind of things like, oh, I could see that actually happening in the future. I, I also like, um, it, it's, it's an a, a upsetting movie in many ways, but uh, Children of Men had a, a great prediction or forecast of it in the sense of the things that have advanced uh, technologically are the things which have, the things of convenience, such as how we can, uh, watch things. I mean, there's that scene when uh, when the the child is or, or the teenager is kind of playing that game on his on his hand thing, uh, or or you know how they can cycle through TV and that sort of thing. But also the benefit or, or the advancements of technology that would benefit mankind are kind of you don't really see those a whole lot. It's sort of it's sort of transportation and it's entertainment, but it's not the things that you would expect. Um, which sort of makes sense when it comes to if you look at it through a lens of like how. Uh, capitalism versus um i uh i'm blanking on a word but uh how capitalism is going to dictate things instead of just what is going to um be good for all of mankind what is going to entertain or keep mankind occupied basically what the hell is that noise it sounds like somebody angrily pushing the space bar uh in on their keyboard (laughs) is um raindrops hitting the window unit in uh, of the air conditioning in my bed. Ugh. Ah. Yeah. You know what? I, now I'm not coming to New York because, uh, you know, <laughs> it's it rains fine. there. It rains it there. Rain here. <laughs> not today. Anyway. Uh, okay. Driver? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So what else, so what else we got as far as uh, technology? I mean, I, of course there are many options, uh, of movies saying like, well, this is how it will look. This is the kind of technology we'll have uh, in the future. Um, I mean, obviously Wally is a big one, like that is, is sort of projecting certain things the way like, you know, technology enabling us to n- do everything we want to do without ever leaving our chair. So like the chairs move, uh, we can talk to people like this, um, at all times. And so we never actually have to get out of the chair and never have to look at each other. And mm-hmm. it really like turns us into overgrown babies. Well, and, and I know when I had, a, um, I had even done kind of a, not just thinking through movies I had seen and, and rewatching some stuff, but even just kind of Googling lists about like, you know, outdated technology or what was the future supposed to look like. I know minority report kept showing up on a lot of lists, but I, I 
that's a movie I haven't seen in a long time, so I can't really um, speak much to it. But other than that, I believe that is every movie. Um, <laughs> covered them all, I think. All right. Well, thanks for... Uh... <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, giving us a little bit of uh, New York weather uh, <laughs> that we don't have here. Uh, of course, you can find us at battleshipretention.com uh, this week. Oh, Tyler, you and I reviewed uh, so many movies. You reviewed, well, I guess The Beach House was technically last week. You reviewed Useless Humans. I reviewed yeah. Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, The Old Guard, and Guest of Honor. Uh, plus there's plenty of other stuff uh, at battleshipretention.com so check that out you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com you can follow me david on twitter at davy pretension you can follow tyler on twitter at tyler pretension tyler do you have anything else to plug yeah over more than one lesson uh this week you can hear me do an episode about the christian film i still believe with uh, kevin mccreary of the uh say goodnight kevin uh youtube show and uh, we talk at length about it because we're both blowhards and we have very strong opinions about the movie, both how it is, uh, how it does well and mostly how it, where it falls short. Jim, where can people find you and what do you have to plug? Um, I am on Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth. Uh, you can find back episodes of I Do Movies Badly by going to battleshipretention.com and uh, mm. going to the podcast drop down menu and finding you there. Um, my guest for this month was David Bax of battleshipretention.com talking to me about some films from the cut exploitation or tax shelter films from uh, Canada from the 1970s to the 1980s. Um, and in addition to that, I have another podcast called The Cast of Cthulhu, which is reviewing cinematic adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft work with that I do with James McCormick. Um, this month we are doing some spiritual adaptations, and um, I believe as of this recording, next week's episode will be talking with Jerry Smith of The Pod and the Pendulum podcast about uh, Frank Darabont's The Mist. So you can find um, that at uh, castofcthulhu.podbean.com. You know who enjoys being on podcasts? Me and David, and yet we've not, been, to my knowledge, have not been invited to this really fun-sounding H.P. Lovecraft cast. Um, what's, the, what's the deal? Uh, I, I just uh, assumed that you were not um, H.P. Lovecraft fans is basically what it came down to. I don't care for his work, but I love his views. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I think that's a great place. And to I have to it. assume, I have to assume any podcast that would devote itself to him is kind of on board with him in, in, in total. Now I, I know, I know you're being facetious Tyler, but we did spend um, quite a, a lengthy time talking uh, about HP Lovecraft, his uh, extremely racist um, views and how we reconcile being a fan of uh, the work of a man who was uh, a pretty garbage human being. Um, we didn't come to any easy conclusions, but it was a conversation that we had, which we felt was important, especially in light of uh, Black Lives Matter and a lot of stuff which is going on in the current um, uh, political climate. And uh, people, if you had heard H.P. Lovecraft was a little bit racist, not just a little bit racist, um, got a, uh, was divorced from his Jewish wife because he thought Hitler had some good ideas, kind of a racist guy. So, Yeah, I, uh, I was watching a documentary, like just a... I think it was like a one hour documentary on, on YouTube about him, in which people talked about his, his, his writing. And uh, what was it? I, I, I'm actually unfamiliar with his writing for the most part outside of uh, at the mountains of madness, uh, which I thought was very interesting. And certainly these yeah. people talked about like his impact, but there was a significant portion 
of um of the documentary uh, devoted to like his xenophobia and then they also i think talked about like the because you know no no artist compartmentalizes everything and so like here's where that is reflected consciously or unconsciously in in his work so it's not he's he's someone that i find very interesting just because of who he's inspired and how and then who he is as a person in the way that did and did not impact the work it's it's you know it's a conversation worth having certainly yeah and and it's um if if i may spend a little bit of, of time on this because he he is he is my favorite author of all time um i i love his prose i love the themes that he deals with at least when it comes to um he does horror better than anyone in my view effectively because of he deals with uh, the existential dread of insignificance basically is what it comes down to which i think is something which is a universal truth and a universal fear um i have this tattoo on my arm the opening line to his um essay supernatural horror in literature is um the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown, which I think is something which on an intimate level or a grandiose level is something that I think everyone can relate to. Um, so he does that very effectively. And he was an Anglophile. He was a fan of Poe. So his writing is very, um, very um, eloquent, which I, I really enjoy and I really connect with, but he was a guy that it wasn't even as though he was a good writer and also he had some troubling views. His racism and xenophobia is a pivotal part of some of his stories, such as the horror of Red Hook, where the horror is basically black people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and so we, you know, we have been having conversations, and I, James and I had this conversation um, about how we try and reconcile that because um, whether you think cancel culture is a thing or not, there certainly is this idea of the rejection of art and their artists and wholesale. And, and I, I go back and forth on it too, because I, I have stopped um, supporting the career of Roman Polanski. I have stopped supporting the career of Louis CK. I've stopped supporting the career of Woody Allen, but I am still engaging with the work of HP Lovecraft. Um, the conclusion I have ultimately come to is, well, one on a superficial level, uh, he is dead, and he does not have an estate which is making any money off of his work. A lot of his stuff is in the public domain, so there is no way that there can be a financial benefit to him or some type of estate. Um, and another one is, because of that, artists from different perspectives can now re-engage with, subvert, and interact with his work in a way which speaks to the experience of outsiders or the people that he was fearful of. And a prime example of that is the book, which is the upcoming HBO series, Lovecraft Country, um, in which the protagonists are um, African-Americans in the 1950s traveling through a, a place which is literally called Lovecraft Country because of one, the kind of people who live there, but also because of some monstrous and supernatural things going on. So it's just this idea of um, this idea of existential horror and existential dread is something which everyone can experience, but there are certain demographics in certain communities which experience it in a way which is every day they go out and they say, or they think, or they believe because of forces like my life is not as significant 
and or my life is underrepresented or I live in fear of something. And so the fact that his stuff is in the public domain means his work can be subverted, his work can be engaged with and reevaluated and, and re redone basically in such a way where it can still have a significance and can still have a meaning even if he didn't intend it and even if he would have been opposed to it there's fuck all he can do now because he is not around anymore that's basically kind of the the conclusion we came to you can agree or disagree with it it's not an easy one but i and i will admit that it's when there's uh, something or someone that you are a fan of and the faults and the flaws are brought to you, um, it's harder for you to kind of be objective about it when it's like, oh, well, that, that person, yeah, that person's shitty. But, but you know, it's, it's harder when it's your own thing, basically. But that's, that's, I, uh, that's I feel like, like when Entertainment Weekly runs an excerpt from the new Stephen King novel i feel like we just gave our listeners like a taste of the cast of cthulhu <laughs> that's that, that's basically it and then we do also talk about movies a, a lot of them because this stuff is in the public domain anyone can make it and boy anyone makes it yeah <laughs> uh incidentally i will say since we're pushing things um over more than one lesson.com there is a podcast called the fear of god and they somewhat recently interviewed matt ruff who wrote the novel lovecraft lovecraft oh, wow. country okay how about that yeah uh all right well thank you jim for being here or being in new york uh and thank you at home for listening we'll get you next time bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.